Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame starting May 7th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich men Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts Hi everyone, it's Sophia Welcome to Work in Progress. Today, I am absolutely honored to be talking to a titan in the world of fashion history, women's history, and, well, history, Diane von Furstenberg, or as she is known commonly around the world, DVF. Born in Belgium at the end of the Second World War to Holocaust survivor parents, DVF went on to change the fashion world, married a prince, and amassed a net worth of over a billion dollars. Her clothes have been worn by millions of women around the world, including Catherine, the Duchess of Cambridge, Gwyneth Paltrow, Jennifer Lopez, Madonna, and my very favorite, Michelle Obama. She's written several books, including Diane, A Signature Life, and The Woman I Wanted to Be, and the upcoming Own It, The Secret to Life. Now at 74, she oversees the Diller von Furstenberg Family Foundation with her second husband, TV pioneer Barry Diller, which puts their wealth to good use, providing support to nonprofit organizations, including community building, education, human rights, arts, health, and the environment. DVF is an overwhelming inspiration to me personally and to women everywhere. She's overcome incredible odds and changed the world. I was honored to get a chance to learn from her, her story, and her passion for her work and causes. She discussed becoming a young mother at 22, leaving her first marriage, moving to America, and starting her own career in fashion, which resulted in the creation of the world-famous wrap dress. And we also talked about how she and her husband, Barry, along with their children and grandchildren, have created a family unit that formed a foundation to help those in need. DVF is one of the most accomplished people I've had the pleasure of talking to. She is a wealth of knowledge and experience and joy. I learned so much from her, and I know you will too. Diane, it's such an honor to have you on the podcast today. You are a woman who has been an icon to me for so long, 
And it's sort of a pinch me moment every time I get to spend time with you because we've become friends and, and you know. are this incredible advocate and, and we've worked on wonderful, wonderful work for the public together. And I don't know if I've ever told you this, but back when I was in college with my very first paycheck I ever earned from an acting job, I went to Bloomingdale's and I bought two things. I bought an orange unbelievable Marc Jacobs jacket and I bought a Diane von Furstenberg wrap dress. It was a black and camel and white dress and it was so fabulous. Do you still have it? I do. I still have it. I don't know if it fits me anymore because, you know, I was 18 at the time. (laughs) But it was such a moment for me as a young woman. I felt felt like an adult. I know. You know, it's very funny because... Right now, it's it's a very very interesting moment, even in the for the brand because with everything that happened, it was a moment to reset the business plan and reset everything and make sure that you stay to the core of who you are and and all of that. And I also realized I have so many archives and such a huge library of prints and. My vault is is huge on the brand. The next year will be 50 years. So now I have a very young team. And it's so nice because they get so excited about the 70s, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's very nice. And then so what I was saying is that I did not know what I wanted to do. But I knew the kind of woman I wanted to be. I Mm. wanted to be a woman in charge, right? I wanted to have a man's life in a woman's body. And at 28, I was already separated. I already had two children. I already was enormously successful. So 28, I became the woman I wanted to be. That woman, I was on the cover of Newsweek and interview and Wall Street Journal at 28. And then later, people say, who do you design for? And I always say, the woman in charge. And so in charge has always been very much the umbrella over my brand. And then I started to think about being in charge. What does it mean? Blah, blah, blah. And two years ago, I started the movement and I wrote a mission statement about what it is to be in charge. And to be in charge is first and foremost a commitment to ourselves. It's Mm. not an aggressive thing against man. It's not an aggressive thing, period. It's just owning who we are. We own our imperfection. They become our assets. We own our vulnerability. We can turn it into strength. And I realized, you know, the brand still designed for that 28-year-old woman. She's not a girl. She's a woman. Because even though, you know, I mean, I'm an older woman now, but that 28-year-old woman is still inside me. I remember, you know, that feeling of being in charge is still there. So that is who I cater to. Mm. I'm curious because you you talk about this notion of being a woman in charge being the the thematic umbrella in your life. You know, you've built underneath it and it's a thing that you've continued to pursue. And I wonder, I always like to know who my guests were before we all knew them as the people they are now. I wonder at what age did you begin to feel that kind of pulse for your own 
goals and creativity and power. You grew up in Brussels. Was this something that began there as a little girl? All right. So since you talk about Brussels, I was born in Belgium after the war. Mm-hmm. My mother, during the war, was a prisoner of war in slave labor. She was in the concentration camp, the worst. She went to Auschwitz-Birkenau. Then, mm-hmm. they, you know, they were losing the war. They moved to, you know, another camp, another camp. Anyway, 13 months she spent in the camps. By the time she she came back, she weighed 49 pounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was a skeleton. She wasn't supposed to be alive And in, it's funny because the Holocaust Museum did all this research and they found all this information. And when my mother was liberated, she filled the questionnaire with the name, her surname, age, where she was from, blah, blah, blah. And then it said, state of health. And she wrote excellent health. She could barely move, but she wrote excellent health. And oh. I love that because that really shows her willpower. She never wanted to be a victim. Mm. So to me, I was raised as, you know, I mean, the doctor, when she got married, the doctor said, you cannot have a child for at least three years because you will not survive and your child will not be normal. And sure enough, I was born nine months later. Mm. So I mean, the fact that she had, was not supposed to survive, I was not supposed to be born, all of this makes who I am, right? I was raised by a mother who told me fear was not an option. She would never allow me to be afraid. If I was afraid of the dark, she would lock me in a closet. Today, she would get arrested. But truly, I'm thankful she did that because after five minutes, you realize that it doesn't stay dark. And even if it does stay dark, what's to be afraid of the dark, you know? So she made me like that. She made me very responsible. She never told me to be careful. She always said, go ahead, do it, you know, but she made me responsible. You know, if you mm. do it, you pay the consequences. What What was she like to grow up with as you were becoming, you know, a young girl, a teenager? You speak of her so highly in all of your writing and these stories about her are so incredible. I mean, I just think about the determination, the determination, the gumption to say excellent. Listen, when when you have a very strong mother, you also resent that strength, you know? I mean, she would give advice to everybody, all my friends, and and I used to hate that. Now I'm 10 times worse than her. But <laughs> but she made me and my children because she she only died 20 years ago, so Both my children were 30, and she met two of my granddaughters. So mm. she had a major effect on all of us, and we pass it on. I mean, we are definitely a dynasty of very strong women, and we continue to pass the word. You know, at this point of my life, I'm born on New Year's Eve. So on New Year's Eve, I always take a big white sheet of paper, and I make... I do columns, and the first column is family, and the second column is my brand, and then the third is me. And uh, so my family is fine. I'm so proud of who they are, all of them, and blah, blah, blah. My brand is now being rebirthed. You know, I'm creating a, a rebirth again. And me, at this point, 
What I want to do with the rest of my life the most is I want to use my voice, my knowledge, my, my experience, my connections, my resources in order to help other women to be the women they want to be. And I do that through the DVF Awards. I do that through my books. I do that through mentoring. I do that to the philanthropy, everything that I do. And it's very... It's very fulfilling. You know, mm. I, am, I am blessed that I have had a very, very full life. I mean, it hasn't always been great. I have been sick. I have gone through failures. I've gone through all kinds of things. But, I mean, now looking back, I mean, I have so many, so much experience, so many Images, memories, souvenirs, mm. connection, relationship, people who come in and go out of your life. And it's, it's a wonderful chain of love that you build, you know. And writing this book has been amazing. First, the book was going to be called In Charge. Everything about In Charge brings you back to own it. Then I decided, okay, I'm going to call it Own It. And first it was going to be in prose. And then when I was writing it, I thought it was condescending. And then I decided to make it as a dictionary. And I lined up 268 words that speak to me and uh, some words that don't speak to me. And I started writing it. And then COVID happened. And then all of a sudden with COVID... It was, oh my God, everything became more serious. Every word had so much more mm. meaning. And, and that was very good. But what it was great is that at the end of it, I realized that actually I have never lied, mostly not to myself. And that is what has allowed me to have a great life. Mm. And this is what I would like to say in this book in a very fun way, in a non-condescending way, just make people realize that we have the keys of our life, that we, we own who we are, that our character is the most important thing. I mean, we could lose our health, we could lose our wealth, we could lose our beauty, we could lose our family, we could lose our freedom, but we never lose our character, even mm. under torture. You see, my mother never lost her, her character, even though she was humiliated to the worst way. So it's really this book is all these little experiences, all these little anecdotes, all these little words and definition that I have learned. And all my knowledge is in the, this tiny little book, which originally was supposed to be just a gift on the verge of being frivolous. And yes, it's fun, but it's also serious. But mm -hmm. serious doesn't mean boring. Certainly. And I think you referenced COVID, you know, casting this shadow over all of us. And, and I had a, a similar feeling to what you described. Everything felt like it had more weight. Things felt more solid, more important. Um, connections felt clearer. Family felt even more important. And I think there's something really profound about sitting with our lessons 
and our thoughts in a time like this. And I, and I can feel it in the book, you know, and I, I started to read it and I thought, oh, this is, this is really connected to kind of the depths of who we are and, and how we came to be really. No, listen, I mean, we, some people didn't, I mean, I kept on annoying my husband all the time. Have you learned something? <laughs> what, what, you know, and he doesn't want to deal with that. He didn't want to deal with it. What do you mean? What do you mean what I learned? I said, I don't know. But if the world stops, if the entire <sighs> world is stops, if everyone is wearing a mask, I mean, there must be some meaning that we all should learn from this, no? Mm-hmm. I believe so. I do. And I think even what it can mean as you say, to see everyone wearing a mask. You know, if you have to go to the grocery store or wherever it is you need to be, the amount of love that I found myself feeling when I would see a group of people lining up six feet apart, waiting to get into the grocery store, everyone in a mask, I thought every single person I see who's wearing a mask, just like I am, cares about humanity. Cares about their neighbors, cares about their family. What a what a symbol of not just patriotism, not just let's do it for for our communities, but really let's do it for each other. Right. The one to one human interaction. It 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 sent me into such a space of of analyzing the way we cohabitate differently, and it it was profound at times. Yeah, yeah. And I think how interesting, you know, you talk about the profundity of being your mother's daughter and this profundity that you experienced in this pandemic, writing this book. And you've had such a journey in between these two times we're referencing so far. And I I wonder, where did it all begin? Where did the love of clothes begin? Was that as a young woman? Did no. did something happen when you were studying economics? Because to go from the University of Geneva studying economics to, to wind up in Paris working in fashion, the turns are just amazing. Well, I did not know what I wanted to do. I really did not know. And I didn't have a career path at all. I never graduated. And I went to Paris and I got a job uh, for a photographer's mm-hmm. agent. And uh, d- during that job, I mean, I was just a receptionist, uh, you know, an assistant. But what I discovered there was the uh, the world of fashion, the world of magazine, photographers, models, makeup artists, advertising agency, I mean, the, the image of fashion. And then uh, I met an Italian man, and he said to me, you know, you should come and come to see what I do. I have a factory in in Como, and I print silk. I'm a printer, and you should see what the other mm-hmm. side of fashion where they make things. And I went there. I mean, and believe me, when I say to young people, you know, when you start your life, you have all the doors in front of you, and you don't know which is your door. I promise you, that was the least glamorous door, and that certainly is not the door that I thought would be my door. But it ended up being my door. It was fascinating, because Como is the end of the Silk Road, and that's where all the silk factories, the Italian silk factories are. And this man was a printer. So he would print 
print, print. And so I learned how to buy illustration, how to put it together, how to do a color palette and all of those things. I learned there, but I never thought I was going to use it. And then he bought the factory next door. And in the factory next door, they were making hose. And then the hose were no longer in fashion because the pantyhose was born. And so when he bought that, there were all these machines who were tubular knitting machines. And this man, so he said, I don't want to throw these machines. What could we do with this machine? And he called the yarn company. And he experimented with thicker yarn. And that's how he discovered the jersey fabric. So the jersey fabric and then the print. And then he went, then he had to find a factory where their needles were small enough to deal with those kind of fabric. Then I went to, my mother gave me for my birthday, she gave me a ticket to go and visit my boyfriend in New York. So I went to New York. My boyfriend was a young, glamorous, Austro-Italian prince. So everybody in New York was, you know, crazy about him. So he was invited everywhere. So because I came and visit, I was invited everywhere. And I met and all the young designers of the time, the Holston, the mm. Stephen Burroughs, Giorgio Sant'Angelo, all those people gave me clothes. I went to their showroom and I had not seen clothes like that. So after two months, I had to go back to Europe. I went back to the factory, determined that I had to find a way to go back to America. And that moment when I went inside the factory, I said, oh, now I know Mm. I'm here. I'm going to make some samples that I will try to sell in America. And that's how it started. Incredible. And when does that, fall on the timeline because many of us who have studied your career have seen, you know, the photos from that incredible, as you mentioned, the 70s fashion era, Studio 54 culture and the stunning images of the dancing and the nightlife and and the fashion. I mean, it feels electric. Was that in the earlier part of your career? What are your memories from that time? Yes, yes. That was the, that was the 70s. You know, I was, my mother used to say I was lazy. I think I was lazy until I was 22. And at age 22, I got pregnant. I got married in that order. I started to work and I moved mm. to America. And from that moment on, I mm-hmm. haven't stopped. <laughs> and and what was it like posing for Andy Warhol and, and being in that, that space? All right. So New York in the 70s was first and foremost dirty mm. and dangerous. But as a result, because it was also very cheap, you had a lot of artists and there was also a feeling of freedom. Somehow there was sexual freedom because that was the space, the 10 years between the discovery of the pill and the discovery of AIDS. There was also the era of women's Mm -hmm. liberation. They was make love and not war. It was, let's say, it was a very fun time mm. to be young. My mom has great stories. She she grew up on the East Coast as well and was living in Manhattan in the 70s and talks about, you know, the protests. She would say we'd, we'd go to a protest and, you know, be chanting about how Vietnam had to end and then we'd go to 54 and you dance you dance away all the stress and the the fear and i know i know i know 
I, it was that time, even in Paris, even when I was in Paris in 68, it was the same thing. And you, you were, you know, demonstrating in the street and then you mm-hmm. would go dancing. I, I remember many years ago leading one of my first uh, marches on Washington uh, for human rights. And we had this incredible man who was a longtime human rights lawyer who came to speak to us. And he actually said that if you have the privilege to march in defense of others, you need to make sure that when your marching is done, you dance to celebrate your freedom. Oh, nice, nice. nice. <laughs> Makes me cry. I just think it's such a, a beautiful reminder about doing the work and holding your joy. Enjoying and it. And you, I think, yes. are such a, a pro at that. You've done such incredible work, but you do it with joy. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, listen, sometimes I'm a little, you know, I'm down on myself Mm. or sometimes, but I am on a mission. Mm. And that's what own it is about. Own Mm -hmm. it, whatever it is, own it. Whatever happens to you, own it. Mm. You know, whether it's you're being diagnosed with cancer or you have a flood in your bathroom or your boyfriend left you or whatever, you know, just own it. Mm. And and the minute you own it, you're in control. So I'm curious about how you get there because the idea of owning it, of using anything that happens to you, good or bad, as, as fuel for your power, that feels like an aha moment to me when you talk about it, a, a sort of revelation of how to live. And for me, something I've spoken about with so many of my female friends is that there's such a culture of shame that is thrust upon women. If someone left you, what did you do? Why why couldn't you hold a man? If you left a relationship, what's wrong oh, with no. you? If if you have a failure no. at work, if you there there's so much about no matter what a woman does, she's kind of doing it wrong. So how did you change that? Okay, first of all, the words to throw in the baskets are blame and mm. shame mm. and complain. Mm. I yeah, I don't complain. I don't blame. Even even when you could blame someone, just forget it. Don't waste your time blaming anyone. <sighs> just deal with it. You know, deal with it. Whatever it is. But shame, I mean, shame is I mean, the only thing you could be shameful for is to have shame. You should mm. not have shame of being who you are. You are who you are, and you got to own it. Mm. And, of course, be a good person. I mean, you know, and be truthful and be honest and all of that. But shame, shame for what? Oh, I hate that word. Hate it. I think it's a really important thing for people to hear. To your point, the umbrella society may want to put over us includes those words you want to throw in the bin, but the umbrella you are encouraging people to live under is owning it, is being a woman in charge. Exactly. And I'm going to see what I wrote for shame. Shame. Shame must be avoided at all costs. Although it can be hard when we accept ourselves and our actions, we have no reason to have shame. We mentioned blame too. I want you to read blame. Blame is a word to ban from our vocabulary. When we blame, we give up power. Blaming is the opposite of owning it. Mm. You know, we waste we waste time blaming, 
you know, even the weather. And what's what's the point? So mm-hmm. owning it, yeah. One that I really loved and that felt like such a moment for the book, uh, and I think because so much of what you and I have been able to do together over the years has revolved around activism and advocacy. Your, your musing on advocacy in the book, you said, fight for the good and the bad will disappear. Standing up against violence, abuse, and inequality, we must look for the light and build around it. Finding empathy inside us will help shift humanity. Advocacy is using our voice. It is our duty and a privilege to do so. And I just, I love that. Find the light and build around it. And it, it feels like a, a book of secrets for me, and I, I imagine for so many women. What sign are you? I'm a Cancer. What are you? Capricorn. Ah. Do you, do you identify with the, with the goat? Yes. explanations of your sign? I am definitely a goat. I love to climb. I'm a big hiker. So I, I totally identify with a goat, yes. <laughs> yeah, mine is... Mine in my is, family, they call me the goat. I love that. Mine is all about water. And, you know, I'm a cancer with an... I, I think it's an Aquarius rising, so it's just water everywhere. So lots of feelings. Everything that's beautiful makes me cry. Like the quote in your book. <laughs> and I... Yeah, I, I really, I find that I feel the earth and I'm very sensitive to what's happening to people on and the And you planet. can hear and it think, in your voice. How so? I don't know. You have a very, very, very compassionate voice. And you know, compassion is, a, is an interesting word. It's a word that I had never thought about until a long time ago I was diagnosed with cancer and all of a sudden I understood what compassion was. And that's the secret also of words. That's why I like having done this book as a dictionary because words have power. Words have energy Mm. on their own. And it's nice to meditate on a word. And And the meaning of a word can change according to where you are in life. And it's interesting. And it's also my mother didn't want me to use words not right. Like if I would say, oh, it's divine. She said, what do you mean divine? What does that mean? You know, she made sure always that I use mm. the proper words. When you, th- when you say that words can change, I, I know what you mean. It's, it's, it's a very intimate truth that depending on what you're going through or what you've learned, uh, a word when you are being clear about its definition can mean different things to you or affect you differently. I'm, but I'm also so curious. It, it has power. Words have power. Yes. I mean, very those, much. You know, you use words, you have to be very careful. Like people say, oh, uh, I die for it. I say, no, no, don't say that. I mean, what do you mean you die for it? I mean, words have power, words have mm. energy. It's like intention. The most important thing to focus on is intention. I used to do Tai Chi, and my Tai Chi master taught me. At some point, we were doing exercise, and he said, intention, focus on the intention. And I said, wait, 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 explain this more. And he explained to me that if you focus on energy, you stagnate. If you focus Mm. on power, you get hurt. But if you focus on intention, you get the energy and the power. That's beautiful. So 
how did those lessons affect you when, when you say that you really zeroed in on what compassion meant when you went through your bout with cancer? How, how did that all relate? I don't know. I mean, it, it relates very often with feelings, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. let me read what I wrote. Compassion. Oh, it's a long one. Anyway, I only learned about the meaning of the word compassion after I was diagnosed with cancer at age 47. Until Mm. then, life had been a marathon. I remember the waiting rooms, the fearful eyes. I understood the suffering of others while refusing mine, reaching for my own strength, owning it. My treatment was eight weeks of daily radiation. Although the Mm. treatment itself only took a few minutes, there was always a long wait. The wait became an opportunity for a routine, to find a book to read only there, something that held me together. I picked a story of a grandmother, mother, and daughter, three generations of strong Chinese women who suffered and survived extraordinary difficult condition from bounded feet to cultural revolution. I finished reading the book exactly as I completed my treatment. By that time, I understood compassion. Mm. Compassion is an emotion, but also a muscle that gets trained and developed. It is a practice that adds a fuller dimension to identify with others and their suffering as well as our own. What was your intention when you were going through treatment? Oh, to kill the bad cells. I had invented Mm. a little song and I would walk to the hospital and I would sing this song to kill the bad cells so that they never come back again. That, that Mm. That was my intention. And I think about it in terms of what your Tai Chi master said to you and the idea that if you focus on the intention, you get the energy, you get the power. Incredible. It's, it's in the book, by the way, uh, under the letter intention, so you can go back to it. Mm. I'm going to read you one more. Provocative, okay. because I really like it. Provocative is one of my favorite words. I love the sound of it. It tickles. It's a combination of question and affirmation. Nothing is more provocative than speaking the truth and revealing our imperfections. The provocative part gets the attention, but the truth gets respect. When I first started my company in my early 20s, I did a lot of personal appearances all around the country. L.A., Philadelphia, Detroit, Miami, San Francisco. It was all so new and exotic to me. A young European Park Avenue princess coming to town to show her easy, affordable little dresses is how I was introduced by the local press everywhere. I did not love that definition. That's when I decided to be a bit more provocative in my narrative, to show that I was not perfect. The words became mine and the story no longer a fairy tale. Mm, Beautiful. And there is really something to remembering that you have the power and permission to define yourself, to not settle for anyone else's definition of you. That That is provocative and it is powerful. Exactly. Power is important to be remembered. Forget about the permission. You don't need anyone's permission. Mm. I said I said last year, having a conversation with a 
another person who's become a good friend on the podcast, I said, look, you have to write your own permission slips. That's right. That's right. But I mean, the word permission is like, it's, a, it's funny, it's a word I never use. Yeah. I'm not surprised by that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You, you remind us all to move away from needing permission, even from ourselves. And I like that. Yeah. Just own the, own it. Own that you have it. Just own it. But you do. You do, Sophia. You do. Thank you, Diane. You own it. And, and But, you know, again, here's an example. Doesn't mean that, you know, because you own what you do and you are the woman you want to be, doesn't mean that you don't have compassion for others. I asked you how you were and you were well, but the first thing you talked about was all the people who are not well. You own who you are, but you, that doesn't take away that you have the compassion and you want and the desire to help the ones that don't. I agree. I, I, I feel very similarly to you. I think it's a duty and it's a responsibility and it's a privilege. It is a privilege to be able to serve others. And I mean, oh, it's total privilege, total. Hmm. Attention. That's another one that I love, 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 hmm. love. Here it is. Uh, once we pay attention to details and to others, our lives become richer. It is like adding colors to a drawing, turning into a painting, or walking into a forest. Some people will see trees, others a universe. And paying attention mm. to people is a huge secret. It's a huge secret, and it's a key to mm. open so many things. When you when you talk about owning it and, and you mention the lists you like to make, you know, you made a list of words for this book and you make lists on your birthday on New Year's Eve, you speak about the list you make for the brand. And, and at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that you are re-envisioning it, which feels wild to me as, as it's so yes. iconic and, and successful. Yes. Yes, but you know, you have, I was very successful and then I sold the company and then 20 years ago I started again. The brand was in the worst place. I started again and it went success. I mean, you know, you have mm -hmm. 20 years, it's generation. And I had management who mm. overexpanded, wanted to be too big and it wasn't right. So I had to rescale it. And, not, and go back to the core because I had offers. People wanted to buy it. And I realized what the assets they wanted to buy. They wanted to buy the name. They wanted to buy the library of prints. They wanted to buy the, the iconic silhouettes, my archive and all of that. And I thought, oh, that's true. That is very valuable. Mm -hmm. So I'm putting it all together and I have very young team. And to see how mm -hmm. they see it and how they interpret it is very, very exciting. Yeah. And then also we live in a different world. It's the world of uh, virtual, you know. I mean, we're also virtual. And I love the virtual world. Mm -hmm. I love my phone. I love my iPad. It gives me access to everything and everyone. It's a different world. So it's very exciting because it's like an old brand, but it's going to be a new startup. And when you look through your archives, which, by the way, when we're all allowed to see each other again, I, I am desperate to get in there and see all of your prints and patterns. When you look through those things... How does it feel? Does it evoke 
memories. Do you remember when the wrap dress first came out and started all of this? Yes, yes, of course. I remember all the prints. I remember, of course, of course. And also I, I write my diary and I've always mm. kept a visual diary with photographs. And what is amazing is how consistent. Uh, the girl who runs the archive, she sent me an article of when I was 25. And I'm talking, I say exactly mm. the same thing that I said now. I mean, it's insane. So it's fun. What year was it that the rap first came out? 74. Wow. And as you are reimagining, do you feel like you will continue to use that silhouette? Yes. I mean, that's a mm. silhouette that's so classic, for sure, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. But you have different interpretation, yes. you know, lots, yeah. I'm curious, too, when, when you think about the industry, you know, between 74 and now, are, are there things you've noticed about the way that it has changed, the way that social media has changed it? What do you really see as those big markers in the industry? What has changed, of course, internet and buying online and, and all of that and social mm. media. Yeah, it has changed everything. But the essence of what you say and the essence of a woman, you know, DVF is about the woman first, right? Mm -hmm. Woman before fashion. So I talk about body language, eye contact and body language. When I first started with my little dresses, other designers would look and say, what's special? What, what are those stupid little dresses? Well, mm -hmm. they may have looked like that on the hanger, but when the woman put it on, all of a sudden her body language came out. And mm -hmm. that's what I know how to do. It's very simple clothes, very simple, but somehow the shape, the way, all these old-fashioned dressmaking tricks make your body mm -hmm. look good. Look, this is a newspaper that somebody sent me, and this is, I don't know, in the 70s, and this is what I wrote. Self-discovery is a frightening journey, the process of growth, of becoming independent, learning who you are and what you want from life is the real secret of life, happiness and beauty. So, mm. you know, I was saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me that that is the essence that you put into your clothes yes. for women. Yes. Because you, yes. as you say, you make clothes for us to wear. Not clothes that wear us. That's right. And it's the woman, it's how you move. I always say, mm -hmm. how do you put that on? Or how do you do that? That's what the difference between men designer, uh, Christian Lacroix once said to me, men designer make costume, women designer make clothes. I say, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. He said, well, look at, for example, jersey, right? Jersey fabric. No man designer, you can't get excited with jersey, you know, you get excited with satin, but women designer, whether it's Coco Chanel or Donna Karen, or Norma Kamali, Madame Grey, all of the women designers, they love jersey. Why? Because they know how it feels. Mm. So when you think about feeling and you think about the body language, you want to give someone permission to exude, how do you come up with your designs? Do you design for yourself and then imagine no. other women in the clothes? No. I design 
<laughs> for the woman in charge. That woman who is busy, who she's on the go. I want her to be sexy, free, on the go. And mm. I want to give her clothes that are the best friend in her closet, things that she can wear up or down. She could dress it up with a piece of jewelry, with high heels, and wear it down. It's mm. all about making your life easier and making yourself more beautiful. And that energy, the energy of giving ease and confidence strikes me as also supporting our work. And when we talk about women in the workplace, female leaders, entrepreneurs, I think about all the work you've done with Vital Voices. Can you tell our listeners about the organization and how it works? Yes, of course, of course. So Vital Voices is the most efficient, most wonderful global network of women's leaders. And 25 years ago, there was the first global meeting of women's leader in Beijing. And Hillary Clinton was first lady, and mm. she went to it. And that's when she said women's rights are human rights. And, mm -hmm. and when she came out of there, she looked at her chief of staff, Milan Vermeer, and she said, we cannot let this fall down like it, because it was so exciting, like a, a souffle. And so they started the organization. At first it was governmental, and now it's independent. And it is amazing. I mean, the women that I have met, and when we talk about women's leaders, they're not you know, leader of countries, they, the women who are leaders in the market or things like that, but they did things and they made things and they create this incredible network and we train them and we help them and we resource and it's a fantastic organization. And I've been mm -hmm. on the board for a long, long time now. And because of how, you know, that is also what inspired me to create the DVF Awards, which mm -hmm. are, I give awards to five women every year and I give them money and exposure. And they are incredible women. They're women who had the strength to fight, the courage to survive, and the leadership to inspire. And you're the director of the Diller von Furstenberg Family Foundation. And you support so many. Well, we're, yeah, we're, we are all together. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're equal in the family. Yeah. yeah. And I, I love that not only are you giving these grants to women, but you're, you're providing support to nonprofit organizations in areas of community building, education, human rights, arts, health, environment. I mean, you're doing so much incredible work. We do the best we can. We should do more. But to leave an impact, I mean, if you're lucky that you have a voice, that you have an ability to give people exposure, if you have the resources, it's an obligation, a duty, mm -hmm. but it's also an amazing privilege. Well, one of the things I always think about in terms of your impact when I'm in New York uh, and walking along the High Line is the fact that you helped to bring that into existence through the foundation. I do. I did. I did. Yes, I have to say that. We're definitely responsible for the High Line. And now we're launching, we're opening the Little Island, which is the park on Pier 55. Mm. Yes, it is true. That that definitely exists. I mean, the last thing that Rudy Giuliani 
did as a mayor is that he signed the destruction of the High Line, and we had to revert it. Wow. For, for anyone who's listening at home who hasn't been to New York or may not know what the High Line is, can you, can you tell the listeners about it? Yes. So the High Line is this elevated railroad that went from Gansevoort all the way to Javits Center. And it was for the meat pack. That's how they transported the meat. And it was a railroad and it was abandoned. And all the real estate people wanted it to be destroyed so that they could use the real estate for their buildings. And when I started the company again 20 years ago, I moved to the neighborhood. And when you move to a neighborhood, you meet people. And I met these two young guys. And they had this dream of taking the High Line and turning it into a park. And I, because I had a big studio, they used my studio to give their first fundraiser. And then from there on, I was, you know, very committed. We ended up being the largest contributor for the High Line. And it is now a park. And it is number one, if you can believe it, it's a number one tourist destination. It's incredible. I mean, the... The landscaping, the plants, the art, the the view of the buildings. It's it's really one of my favorite places to walk in New York. So thank you. Thank you. And I'm curious because you you and your husband and the foundation that you run together, as you mentioned, you're you're such a partnership. And I think it takes quite a phenomenal man to be a partner to and be in awe of a woman who's in charge. How have the two of you created such a healthy partnership and been able to influence each other in love and in work? I don't know. I, te- I always say that he gets all of the credit, but maybe I should get some too. <laughs> and it's not just my husband and I, but it's also our children and their mm-hmm. grandchildren. You know, I was always afraid. I never wanted to be too strong of a mother and a mother that overpowered her children. So I always made sure that my children had plenty of space to talk and clearly they did and they do. So every decisions we make, we make it as a family and it's, it's fun. It's really fun. Even now one of my granddaughters, it was an art camp that she went all her life and she loved that camp. And I don't know why. I used to say, one day you will own that camp. And uh, the camp was in difficulty. And she asked for the foundation to buy the camp. So now the foundation owns the camp. And so that uh, underprivileged children can also go to that art camp. And so even though she's only 20, she's actually Um, running it. Obviously, your family's very inspiring to you. I'm I'm curious, who else in your life inspires you, whether it's authors or other women in your field or or people you've come to know through your foundation? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm here looking at my table and the books that I have. I just read a biography of Walt Disney, and I'm now mm. reading one on Mother Teresa. You know, mm. those are people that inspire me. I mean, there's so many people who inspire me. There's so many people who are interesting. And by the way, sometimes it's not even, you know, they're not that well known. Sometimes I read an article and and, Mm -hmm. then I contact this person. I love my new friends. I love my friends that I made on the internet. I've made, I, and you can have intimate relationship with these people. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Well, I have to thank you for one of the people who inspires me most, who's become one of my closest friends. A few years ago, during your Women's Week event at the store in New York, I interviewed a woman named Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. She's an Uh incredible marine biologist and climate scientist, for those of you listening at home. She joined me on the podcast in our first season, and I'm just in awe of her ability to translate complex science and a motivation for protecting the planet to everyone she speaks to. And we had this phenomenal conversation uh, during the panel that day, and we have stayed. We've stayed the closest of friends. We've just we've had a ball for years. That's what I call the chain of love. Yeah, yeah. It really, it feels like that. You've created many, many a chain. Nice. I love that. Yeah, I love that. When you think about the kinds of events that you're used to throwing, gatherings like that, incredible panels on everything from fashion to climate to politics. And now you're releasing, you know, this fabulous book, but we are still dealing with a pandemic. Do you plan on having a book tour? Will will you do something virtually or will you Oh wait? my God, I am now. I mean, this is my second week of my book tour and I don't wow. stop and I'm not going anywhere. So, I mean, you know, that's why I say, the, look at the great size of, of technology. Of mm. course, we will go back to meet and talk and, and all of that. But the pandemic has accelerated us into the virtual world in, in the most unbelievable way in a year. Yeah, it's very incredible. I, I think about people dealing with the last pandemic in 1918. And I think how much harder it would be because you couldn't do this. You couldn't see the faces of your friends and family. And I mean, I guess you'd have the letters because, you know, you're writing snail mail. So you'd have the souvenirs to reread. But I'm very grateful that we have the ability for connection during all of this. Um, I'm curious, as you talk about this moment in life and we are working from home and everything's changing, what would you say is your favorite piece of clothing in your closet now for this moment? You know, for me, clothes, they have to be reassuring. I'm very faithful to the clothes, to my style, to all of that. So it's always the same. Or it's the white cotton Indian shirts I sleep in, you know, or my favorite sweater or or my pajama pants that I wear all the time. I mean, these also, you know, beautiful. And that's why I think that, strangely enough, the clothes, my clothes are relevant again, because they're just great pieces that you could wear with a sweater, or up or down, or with boots, or, mm. or with slippers. So Yeah, things that create a kind of uniform and make you feel yeah, fabulous. Yeah, well, because it's not so much uniform as much as it's your personality. Again, I go mm. back to... For, Divi, for me, is the woman first. What I want people to remember is you, that you are happy. And so if you feel confident, you look good. So mm. my job is to make you clothes that you will feel comfortable in. I love that. My favorite question to ask everyone who comes on the show is, what would you say in your life feels like a work in progress right now? Life. Life. Mm. Life is a working process. Absolutely. 
The secret to life is owning it. And that is mm. the best advice I can give anyone. And also that, you know, the most important relationship is the one you have with yourself. Mm. All of this is all the same thing. It's about owning it, owning it. I love that. Well, thank you for your friendship and the thank way you. that you thank show you. up in the world for so it's, many of us. It's a real pleasure to listen to you, to talk to you, and, and continue to do the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful work that you do. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you.